0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 227. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Before I dive into today's episode, let me mention that my relatively new book, Understanding Money Mechanics... Is now fully available from the Mises Institute. So for those of you who have been following my work in that dimension, I released each chapter serially over the course of, I guess it's about two years at this point. And so, you know, you may have seen the content all along as I was releasing it. But at this point, you know, we've taken all the chapters, put them together, edited it, fixed up the graphics. And so now it's available both as a physical book and the PDF of the physical book is much more attractive than the web versions of the individual chapters as I wrote them. So uh, for all that stuff, just go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 227 and I'll put a link in so you can get either the PDF or the physical book if you want that. It's just a a crash course in how money and banking work in the modern age. All right, so it has, you know, standard textbook stuff like open market operations, but then it also addresses new things like Bitcoin and takes on Scott Sumner's NGDP targeting, looks at uh, things like modern monetary theory and so forth. All right, so lots of new topics. Okay, so this is the first in a multi-part series it's going to be at least three episodes, but I don't want to say one of three and box myself in in case I end up going longer on Klaus Schwab, the German intellectual. Uh, he's got two different PhDs, academic, who is the founder of the World Economic Forum. And he's one of the brainchilds, children brainchildren of the so-called Great Reset. Right? And so like I say, I'm doing at least three episodes on this guy. Partly what we're going to cover is he's got two published books. One's called The Fourth Industrial Revolution, which we'll be touching on today. And another one is called COVID-19 and The Great Reset, which we'll be covering in the future episodes in this series. So let me just step back for a minute and explain, you know, because Schwab has been on the world's radar for some time at this point. And so why am I talking about it now? And also The Great Reset, too, has been... Publicized since 2020, at least. And so why, you know, why am I doing it now, the series in early 2022? So the main thing from my perspective is I didn't realize how plugged in Klaus Schwab was. All right. So, I, you know, back when I first heard about the Great Reset and I looked in the World Economic Forum and who's this Klaus Schwab? Guy, and I just, I thought he was like an, an academic who was connected to a lot of large corporations and, you know, he seemed like, okay, a big corporatist, globalist type. And that's what I thought he was, where he was coming from. And I and I put him in a little box where, okay, he's coming from academia and or big business, but that's it. And, and you know, so it didn't do much for me. And I, and I didn't, you know, I, I knew I didn't like his ideas and I knew the Great Reset was creepy, but there's all kinds of creepy ideas being advanced by various intellectuals out there. And, and so that's, you know, why I didn't, put too much of my own time into researching this guy and so forth. But then when I realized that he is launching the Great Reset, he's joined at the hip with Prince Charles, right? The guy who was married to Princess Diana, that guy. That's when I I sat up and took notice and I said, oh, wow, maybe we really should look more into this. That I think what Schwab is publishing and the stuff that's coming out of the World Economic Forum if you want to see what quote the agenda is from, you know, this particular group of people, this is where to go. Like this is the script that they're operating off of. And again, so, you know, why did it change? Because I realized, okay, if he's joined with Prince Charles, well, then he's got, you know, the British government sort of, you know, in, in, in his loop, MI6 and, and so forth. Okay. And so that's, that's the reason all of a sudden that I said, oh, okay, so it's not merely that this guy is coming from academia and large multinational corporate interests, but he's now got major Western governments too that he's working closely in conjunction with. So that that was the thing that tipped me over the edge. And so just to give you an idea, and I'll of course link to this at bobmurphyshow.com slash 227. If you go to the World Economic Forum's own Page talking about the Great Reset. All right, so here's uh, this particular one: Klaus Schwab and Prince Charles, and why we need a Great Reset. Listen to the podcast, and it's got this picture showing Schwab and who they call HRH, the Prince of Wales. So his Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, Prince Charles. And so they got these bullet points. And just just listen to this. So it's like bullet points in front of this news release that's being put out by the World Economic Forum. So the Great Reset launched by World Economic Forum and HRH, the Prince of Wales. Next bullet point. Seeking better form of capitalism as world recovers from pandemic. Now listen to this. Next bullet point. Welcomed by UN, IMF, and companies Microsoft, MasterCard, and BP. (laughs) Right? So I mean, in terms of, you know, who so who is behind this, you know, what, what, what groups, the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, Microsoft, MasterCard, and the giant oil company, British Petroleum. All right. And then it, it's got the last bullet point, subscribe to the podcast, World vs. Virus, and The Great Reset. So this particular press release came out on June 4th of 2020. All right. And then here, I'll just read the, the first few things in this release. So it's a quote. The COVID-19 crisis has shown us that our old systems are not fit anymore for the 21st century, said World Economic Forum Executive Chairman Klaus Schwab. In short, we need a Great Reset. This week's World Versus Virus, that's the podcast, is entirely devoted to the launch of the Great Reset, a project to bring the world's best minds together to seek a better, fairer, greener, healthier planet as we rebuild from the pandemic. The podcast includes contributions from HRH, the Prince of Wales, again, his royal highness, IMF chief... Kristalina Georgieva, Labor Representative Sharon Burrow, and the Chief Executives of Microsoft, MasterCard, and BP. And you can watch the whole Great Reset launch here, and it gives a link, and then it gives links to articles and other stuff from Schwab and so forth. So that's the press release. Okay, so there you have it. You see that this guy is at the center of a nexus connecting not just major international corporations like Microsoft, MasterCard, and BP, but also international political organizations like the UN and IMF. And again, he's joined at the hip on this great reset thing with Prince Charles himself. Okay. And their shtick that, you know, the, the way they're packaging this is to say that our old systems have failed, by which they mean traditional capitalism it's, you know, hurting, it's destroying the planet. And hey, now look at, as we've seen, we, we can't contain a global pandemic with the old systems. And so that's why we need something new. So what, what is this new thing? If standard capitalism doesn't work? Well, for here, I'll just go to the World Economic Forum's About page for Klaus Schwab himself, right? So here, I'm not going to Glenn Beck's cheat sheet on who, what do you need to know about Klaus Schwab, I'm going to the World Economic Forum's website. And that's the thing that Schwab founded. And here's just going to give his biography. All right. So I'll just read some excerpts from this. Professor Klaus Schwab was born in Ravensburg, Germany in 1938. He is founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum. And so here now it's got a comma. So this is now what I'm about to read to you this following phrase is what the WEF, so that stands for World Economic Forum, people, it's like the subtitle they themselves offer for what is it the World Economic Forum is all about. So you ready? The International Organization for Public-Private Cooperation. And those are all, those words are all capitalized. Okay, so again, Schwab is the founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, which they describe as the International Organization for Public-Private Cooperation. All right. So let's just elaborate on that a little bit. What does that mean? It's saying they want to link big government with big business. And the, the flow, I think, goes both ways. And I think that's maybe where some libertarian types misconstrue how this works or where these people are coming from or what their mindset is. That libertarians typically view it as business is just sitting there mining its own business, no pun intended. And then the big bad government comes around and starts laying down regulations and taking their money and da-da-da. And no, in general, that's not true. So Ayn Rand was wrong when she said big business is the most persecuted minority in America, which is apparently she said, right? That, no, what can happen is large corporations in particular actually can benefit from government intervention because they can do things like lay down regulations that disproportionately kneecap, there's upstart competitors, right? So if you're a large corporation that already has he- a huge share of the market, you're content just to lock that in. You want to ossify the industry. You don't want a new competitor to come along and you know come up with a new way of delivering the product or service. And so having in place extensive regulations that impose a lot of f- high fixed costs on businesses that can actually help large companies. And and you see this in practice, that where the government agencies get the personnel who know the industry well enough to regulate it, right? Like you, you can't have somebody the, the people at the Department of Transportation, they need to know how cars work, right? Or they need to know how bridges work, let's say, right? You, it's if you literally had people like AOC running the EPA and DOT, and so forth, that would lead to a disaster. And sometimes you do get ridiculous stuff like that, and that's why they have these comment period, you know, when they propose new regulations and have a comment period, and a lot of times the businesses will come in and say, uh, well, if you do the regulation the way you're proposing, it will lead to this absurdity. And, and sometimes they actually do kind of say, oh, yeah, yeah, and they, they, they tweak it a little bit. A good example of that is the so-called ethanol blend wall, where there were regulations put in place under that free market paragon, George W. Bush, that just had an absolute number of gallons of the nation's fuel mix that had to consist of ethanol, you know, rather than a percentage that was ratcheting up over time. And so then when the Great Recession, so-called Great Recession hit and gasoline consumption fell, those regulations were still in place. And so it, it would have required refiners to put in such a high percentage of ethanol that it would have actually damaged vehicle engines. You know, and so the, the refiners were like, they they literally had to break the law no matter what they did. They could either damage the engines, which, you know, I think was violating some other regulation, or they could not meet the ethanol mandate. And so I think it was the EPA that was in charge of that. They kept giving waivers, you know, to extend it because because even they realized, okay, yeah, that's stupid. So anyway, my broader point though is, the so-called revolving door between industry and government agencies. On the one hand, yes, it's very corrupt. And so what happens is the people running those agencies can make favorable rulings to help their buddies. And, you know, it's not that they get a direct bribe at that moment while they're still working for the EPA or the Department of Transportation or whatever, but then they, you know, later they retire from government public service and what do they do oh they get some nice cushy job as a consultant or you know sitting on some board somewhere getting 300 grand a year for doing nothing right so that's, this is the way the system works and i'm saying that yes it's obviously corrupt and it helps you know the the large corporations rather than the the small upstarts but it kind of has to be like that you know you really wouldn't want to have it that federal agencies that were in charge of giving detailed regulations on the day-to-day operations of industry or, you know, firms in the financial sector staffed by people who had no clue how those industries operated, right? And, and I've heard anecdotes to, uh, I'll be kind of vague on, on the details just to protect the innocent or the guilty as the case may be. But I've heard stories too where like a guy who worked at a large hedge fund, there were people from, I don't know. I don't think it was from the Fed. I think it was from, um might've been like from the SEC. But anyway, there were like some relatively young staffers or something that they came in and and they were like going around and looking over their books and whatnot. And, you know, just checking in and making sure they were in compliance. And he said like his employees kind of had to show these people, well, no, you, what you want to be looking at is this thing over here. And this, the, you know what I mean? In other words, the people coming from the government didn't even know what they were doing. Like they they just, because they had never worked at a hedge fund and yet they were in charge of regulating it. And so like the employees of the hedge fund kind of had to show them, okay, so yeah, the statute, what it's talking about is this stuff we're doing here. So look, you can see that we're in compliance, right? So go put that in your report. So anyway, but where I'm coming from is, so the sort of Ayn Rand, oh, big business is oppressed by big evil government yeah, in some sense that's true, but also in in reality it can often go the other way around, and in particular when it comes to Klaus Schwab, so he's not, you know, in league with any particular government. I mean, if anything, you know, he's presumably he's really tied in with the the British Crown and so forth. But that's not his his deal, right? He's talking to power brokers at various levels and in various niches. And so to Klaus Schwab, yeah, the prime minister, the British prime minister is an important, powerful person that needs to be reckoned with. But so is the CEO of Microsoft. And, you know, so is Elon Musk and whatnot. You know, these are all powerful people. And especially as technology advances, I mean, there's there's a sense in which, you know, somebody who starts a new tech company and ends up being worth personally $10 billion and controls a bunch of web traffic or whatever, that person, in a sense, is far more powerful than a lot of government officials on earth. You know, maybe not more powerful than the president of the United States, but certainly more powerful than, you know, the the leader of some dinky little country somewhere. Okay, so in the grand scheme of things, maybe not from the perspective of, the people who happen to live in that little country. But there is a sense in which, and especially too, you might say, you know, if you're a purist libertarian, well, no, but as long as we're respecting property rights, but they're not respecting property rights in general. That's the thing, right? So when these large corporations and the people who are running them, when they form alliances with other governments who do have the power to violate people's rights and so on, then it really does matter, okay? So if some big tech company cuts a deal with the CIA and they're processing, you know, all of their systems that spy on Americans and everybody else on planet Earth, then, you know, you, you can't merely say, well, no, it's an entirely different source of power or type of power and it's abusive language. No, it, it's power, pure and simple. Okay, and so I think the way to understand Schwab is he is a broker-dealer with the world's most powerful people. And that's partly what he's doing with the World Economic Forum. And so just to circle way back now to where when I started down this path, that very phrase, the International Organization for Public-Private Cooperation, I think he's trying to get rid of the traditional walls of separation between all these different spheres of power. And he wants to merge them so that this small group of people now I have their power amplified, right? And by the way, let me just say before I forget, that phrase, public-private cooperation, that's literally the textbook definition of fascism, right? So I'm not trying to throw that around to be provocative. I'm just pointing out that's what fascism is. You know, there's other stuff too that's historically associated with, you know, like militarism and certain types of nationalism and whatnot, and maybe particular views on race, depending on which type of fascism you're looking at. But in terms of at least, you know, economically speaking, what is fascism, it is linking the government and business to serve, you know, the national interest. And so from a fascist's point of view, it's crazy to have like just private shareholders making decisions for a corporation merely to serve their own bottom line, like to the fascist, that's reprehensible, that's treasonous. That's being selfish. That, oh, the people at Microsoft, they're just making decisions based on what gives the highest dividends to Microsoft shareholders. That's that's unconscionable. They should be making decisions that are in the interest, you know, the old school fascists would have said, you know, in the service of Italy. But the Schwab perspective is in the service of mankind. And so, oh, Microsoft needs to help promote malaria nets and it needs to promote birth control in Africa and needs to promote, you know, green energy in the Western world, that kind of stuff, rather than just focusing on how we're going to sell more operating systems. Okay. So now I'm I'm back to reading from the biography of Schwab at the World Economic Forum's website. He founded the forum in 1971, the same year in which he published, and it's got the German title, English translation is modern enterprise management and mechanical engineering. Okay, so Schwab's PA, he has PhDs in both engineering and economics, and I, you know, I think that kind of fits his worldview. So he does know a lot about finance and markets and so on, and he understands how incentives work and how government policy can shape behavior. You know, which is standard things that economists study. But he also sort of views people as pawns on the chessboard. You know, he's, a, he's a, a man of system, to use Adam Smith's phrase, which, you know, not that all people who study engineering think like that. Roger Garrison, for example, I think was in engineering before he switched to economics. But there is that sense, you know, which Schwab wants to re-engineer society. Okay. In that book, he argued that the management of a modern enterprise must serve not only shareholders, but all stakeholders. To achieve long term growth and prosperity, Schwab has championed the multi stakeholder concept since the forum's inception and has become the world's foremost platform for public and private cooperation. Under his leadership, the forum has been a driver for reconciliation efforts in different parts of the world, acting as a catalyst of numerous collaborations and international initiatives. Okay, and then it gives a link to all the different stuff Schwab has been involved with. Okay, so to circle back a bit, what I'm getting at here is what Schwab wants to do. One way of viewing it and what his role has been or his strategy is he wants all these different groups who have their own little spheres of influence or power to join forces, to amplify their power. And so that's why, you know, this, Oh, normally you've got business is just catering to its shareholders. You've got government officials that are catering, you know, in theory to their, Representatives who put them in office or, you know, in practice to whatever, enlarging their budgets or whatever. And they're all at odds with each other that the leader of Germany resents or looks askance at the leader of France and that, that, that. And Schwab's no, 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 let's all work together. And so, you know, Schwab likes these international organizations and NGOs and things. He doesn't. He doesn't like decentralization. He wants to centralize power. You know, and so the stuff I'm saying here, this is not controversial. Like this is the, he admits it openly. And, and that's the thing with a lot of these so-called globalists. And, and I'm, I'm using that term again. It, it has a negative connotation, you know, in the, in the mouths of an Alex Jones or a David Icke or something, but they themselves would say they're globalists, right? And they would say, yeah, of course we are. We, we care about, mankind. We, we don't just care about our own country. You know, that's, that's xenophobia or that's, that's narrow prejudice. You know, that's, that's old school thinking We're we're advanced, we're cosmopolitan. And that's also a very good way for them to diffuse so-called conspiracy theorists because they can say, look, we're not hiding anything. What we want to do is what it right out in the open. All right. You know, and so what their official stance is, is that yes, by unifying all these different power centers, we can achieve great things, right? So if there's runaway global warming, if if we just leave it up to individual decision, you know, individual consumers can just read the literature if they want. And hey, you can buy a a gas guzzler if you want, or you can buy an electric vehicle. Just go do the research yourself and make your own decision. Well, no, we can't can't do that, Schwab would say, because then the planet's going to have... Catastrophic climate change. And we also just can't allow individual governments to do what they think is in the best interest of their own country because then, you know, you'd have like the Russian government might be okay with climate change because they're located in the north and, you know, actually maybe having winters that aren't so cold might benefit them on net, whereas it'd be catastrophic for people located near the equator. And so that's why we need to have the UN and the IMF come in and and have all the different governments of the world, you know, sign Paris agreement and stuff like that. They didn't call it the treaty, by the way, because that's what happened with the Kyoto, that the U.S. Senate didn't confirm it. And so they learned their lesson. So it's not the Paris treaty because they didn't want to have Republicans in the Senate be able to stall it. Okay. So that's where they're coming from. That's the official story that, yes, we are getting rid of all these traditional checks and balances because you can't get anything done in the face of COVID-19 or catastrophic climate change if there's all these different groups that can veto or slow the implementation of radical changes. And so then another way of viewing what Schwab's message has been since early 2020 is, hey, we can all see that this global pandemic has changed the game And so while we're changing the way our governments and business work in light of the pandemic, let's go ahead and really push through these long needed reforms so that we're more nimble and we can tackle all kinds of major challenges, not just pandemics, but things like climate change, right? And so the World Economic Forum has been this platform this publishing warehouse that's been pumping out stuff for decades on, you know, this, this is the kind of policy changes we need. These are the kinds of ways to to transform our system. And for example, you don't want companies catering to their merely to their shareholders, but you want them catering to all the relevant stakeholders. Right. And this too, it's a very seductive approach. This is how he gets everybody on board because he can approach, you know, labor leaders and the heads of various NGOs and so on, various heads of state, various CEOs, and just say, look at all these other people I've got on board, join us, right? It's sort of like the, uh, what's his name, Xerxes in uh, the movie 300, right? <laughs> right? He wasn't He wasn't like a, a monster coming up to people and saying, ha, 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 you will submit or I will torture you. And no, no, no. He was... He was just saying, hey, just, just join me. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be in charge, but, you know, just just join me and it will be good for you, right? And that's, that's sort of how Schwab is playing this. Okay, let me just continue. In 1998, with his wife, Hilda, he created the Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship, which seeks to identify, recognize, and disseminate initiatives in social entrepreneurship that have significantly improved people's lives and the potential to be replicated on a global scale. The foundation supports a network of over 350 social entrepreneurs around the world. In 2004, he got this financial contribution that he won some award, and he set up a new foundation, the Forum of Young Global Leaders for leaders under 40. And then later in 2011, he created the Global Shapers Community for potential leaders between the ages of 20 and 30. The purpose of the two foundations is to integrate young people as a strong voice for the future, into global decision-making processes and to encourage their engagement in concrete projects that address social problems. Okay, so if you're getting lost in the weeds there, he's got these two foundations, which together look around the world and they identify people between the ages of 20 and 40, the two put together, and he handpicks them and then it gives them funding and connects them to all these other powerful people because he thinks they have potential potential Either that they've already demonstrated, or you know that they they have the the potential to become leaders in their respective fields. Okay, and so he's been doing this for seventeen years on the one hand, and ten years on the other hand, or eleven years on the other hand. And so he's had this thing up and running, and so you can see the genius of that. That he's got a ton of money at his disposal. You know this huge network of the world's most powerful people. And then he goes and finds the young talent, the people who are willing to join a network like his. And so that thing's up and running now for a decade or two. And so you can see how over time, just more and more of the people who are assuming leadership roles in the world's most powerful organizations, both government, academia, the nonprofit sector, and so forth, you know, more and more people have been through the, Schwab pipeline. And so they, you know, their thoughts have been molded that way. They know who their friends are. They are on script. Right. So when you're wondering, you know, gee, why is it that like all these buzzwords seem to be, you know, did did the memo go out or something? Like this is partly how that happens. That phenomenon that I'm sure you've observed that, you know, you maybe just couldn't put your finger on, like, how does this actually happen? Well, I'm saying it's stuff like this. Okay. And also, too, Some of you may be more familiar with things like the Council of Foreign Relations or the Bilderberg Group and stuff like that. So Schwab has plugged into all those different arenas as well. Schwab has encouraged the establishment of communities providing global expertise and knowledge for problem solving. Among them is the Network of Global Future Councils, the world's foremost interdisciplinary knowledge network dedicated to promoting innovative thinking on the future. The forum, so here referring to the World Economic Forum employs over 700 people with its headquarters in Geneva, Switzerland, and additional offices in New York, San Francisco, Beijing, and Tokyo. Right. So you can see how, you know, of the advanced economies in the world, this World Economic Forum really, you know, is at all the different power centers. Like, so Schwab knows what's up. And also, too, he is a very smart guy. Right. So the, he's not like Nancy Pelosi or something. Who, who, Not that she's dumb, but she's shrewd politically. But, you know, Nancy Pelosi probably couldn't give you a lecture on general relativity, even if she had a few weeks to prepare for it, whereas Schwab could. Right. So again, he's got PhDs in economics and engineering. He's just, he's an intelligent guy. And so he's, it's not merely that he's buddies with, you know, like the way like Joe Biden is connected, but he's not that scientifically literate where Schwab is. All right, and so he's able to do things like write this book, The Fourth Industrial Revolution, where he's talking about the intersection of all these different advances and how they're all gonna to come together and create a new future. You know, let's go ahead and reshape our social institutions to be ready for it, to take advantage of this opportunity, right? That's, that's where he's coming from. Hey folks, just a quick note. If you like what you're hearing and you wanna hear more, then go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. I thank you in advance. Okay, that's enough of his bio. So here, let me play a clip for you, just again to make sure you understand how connected this guy is. So here he's being interviewed by someone and here's Schwab talking about who his mentor was and what got him interested in geopolitical affairs. Let me go back to the time you said when you came here, it transformed your life. Was there a course a professor who really made that difference for you? Yes, uh, there was um, one course, one seminar of um, Henry Kissinger, um, which really opened my eyes. I wasn't accepted to the seminar, but I sat in. I think he let me in because I was German. And, uh, And it was relatively shortly after the war, there were not too many Germans here. And uh, this created a friendship which has um, uh, endured until today. And, uh, you know, uh, Henry has been several times in in Davos. Um, And I think it was mainly uh, participating in his seminars that I developed my interest for geopolitical affairs. Okay. So there you have it. So I should say with this stuff, you're going to have to make up your own mind, right? So you can probably guess from my tone and the stuff I'm focusing on that I'm extremely leery of this guy. And, you know, he's, you can look at him giving his speeches and you can either, there's two ways of looking at it. You can say he's a well-meaning intellectual who's very concerned about climate change and, you know, wars and unnecessary human suffering. And he just wants to reform the world in a way that helps to alleviate those issues and hey, and if he's wrong, you know, it's just an honest mistake. That's one interpretation. The other interpretation is that he's a James Bond supervillain, All right. And the fact that he's got the thick German accent and he, you know, was born in Germany in 1938, that doesn't help matters much. You know, he, he seems like the kind of guy that Captain America or Indiana Jones might go toe-to-toe with. So, you know, like I say, with this stuff, you're going to have to decide. So in, the, in this series, I will try just to... You know, present the facts and let you decide yourself. But I do want to mention. Let me just go down this path for a minute. Stuff that would have been ludicrous, would have been just laughed out of court as a crazy conspiracy theory, now is on the table, right? And so, specifically, I remember my cousin Frank years ago sent me this. I guess you'd call it a documentary, and it was I think it was called a Wake Up Call. So I'll put it in the show notes page. So it's again, folks com slash 227, assuming that that thing has been taken off YouTube at this point. And it was just a, it was like a a literature review sort of thing. Like it, it wasn't a, its own documentary per se. It was mostly just sampling from other things and then putting it together. And, you know, it started out with a clip from the matrix about the red pill and the blue pill and all that stuff to get to prime you for it, for what was coming. And then it just started going through given all kinds of clips from various people like David Icke and so forth, if you're familiar with him, just talking about the globalists and what they're doing. And they had clips from Alex Jones and say, and this was the first thing I had seen of this genre. Okay. At the time. Right. So I was at that point when my cousin sent me this thing, I was already, you know, a Rothbardian ANCAP, but I, I just thought, Oh, people are ill-informed and you've got these government officials and, they're doing their thing and, you know, maybe they're trying to benefit labor unions with raising the minimum wage and stuff like that. But that was kind of where I was coming from. And I vaguely knew that, oh yeah, there's probably some people behind the scenes doing nefarious stuff. But I just thought, well, how could you know, right? Because by their very nature, wouldn't they hide themselves? And so it was, my cousin sending me this thing was the first major thing on my radar to show that, well, no, if you're concerned about these shadowy international groups that are, Doing stuff, trying to subvert governments and break down the sovereignty of nations and whatnot. You know, just look at these organizations and, and, and read what they're putting out. You know, look at what they're saying openly. This this isn't you don't have to, you know, break in and grab somebody's secret diary here just to, to understand what their agenda is. So anyway, I'm, I'm watching this thing, and they had a clip from, you know, now I know it was Alex Jones at the time. I don't, I didn't know who Alex Jones was. There's some guy with his you know really good radio voice. And he was talking about in the globalist agenda and the to take over you know, and install a surveillance police state in the Western nations and to relegate the African nations to a continuing crisis of internal strife to, to keep them hobbled and da, 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 you know, going through saying that's what the globalist agenda was. And that's what the way to interpret it. So in that framework, the fact that, oh, gee, Western governments are giving foreign aid to these African despots who don't use the money to feed their starving population, but instead use it to enforce the intentional famine. And that's why, you know, like the, we are the world, we are the children, you know, all that stuff. No, that wasn't because the rain didn't come that season. That was because of socialist dictators who were intentionally starving their own people. And that U.S. governments and international aid organizations were sending money to those thugs, and so that's how they were like buying weapons and stuff. That's how they were maintaining their brutal dictatorship was because Western governments were propping them up. And so when you know that fact, one way to explain it is to say, oh, geez, these bumbling, you know, Western governments are just doing that because it looks good on paper and they don't care about the consequences. But Alex Jones's perspective was, no, that is the plan. They, they want to, because they, they know they can control you know, they've got the media and academia and whatever for like the so-called Western nations, right? you know, they got a pretty good handle on Great Britain and the United States and France, you know, in terms of controlling how that's going to evolve. Those, those populations are going to be 30 years from now, whereas they really don't have the ability, you know, they don't, they don't have the, the foothold, nor do they have the, the people in Africa don't trust them, right? Because, you know, the legacy of colonialism and whatever. And so the theory was the way they're going to keep those people from messing with their plans for global domination is just to keep Africa in disarray, right? So that they can't challenge the Western control of the globe because, you know, they've always just got so much craziness going on, on their front doorstep. Okay. Again, so I'm, I'm not putting in all my chips on that hypothesis. I'm just explaining what it was. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. I'm sitting here watching it. And then they kept going, and then Alex Jones goes, and, you know, further the global's ultimate goal of microchipping the population. And I laughed out loud at that point. I was like, oh, come on, right? Because again, at the point when I was watching this, that was a, you know, a far distant thing, right? Nobody was talking about that, it's crazy. They want to microchip the population so they can track everybody and control their purchases and whatever, yeah, get rid of currency, have every transaction run through the microchip that's in your body. So that way, you know, if you're a dissident, they just shut you off, right? Like what, and they had, I think, a clip from David Icke talking about that, where he was, you know, saying, that's why they want to get rid of cash. It's not because they care about counterfeiting. It's not because they care about drug dealers. It's because that's the ultimate way to control people. That they, if you can just, you know, if someone's out of line, you just turn off their ability to engage in commerce. And if all the merchants are all using that one system, and then you can't, you know, go buy your food or toilet paper by saying, oh, you know what? My microchip's not working right now here. Here's a $20 bill or here, you know, here's some silver coins or whatever. That was his point. Because anyway, like I say, when I heard that, I laughed out loud. And then in this documentary, they showed a clip from Sean Hannity, who had some guest on who was promoting voluntary microchipping of people. And they were like selling it as, you know, oh, if your kid gets kidnapped, you know, police can track them in two seconds kind of thing. And Hannity was like, well, yeah, as long as it's voluntary in the private sector, I'm all, I'm all for it. And so I, even at the time, I was like, oh, okay, maybe that's not as outlandish. It's <laughs> a clip from Sean Hannity being okay with voluntary microchipping of people. But why I'm going down this path is in the fourth industrial revolution by Klaus Schwab, he's got an appendix called Deep Shift. And so I'll read for this. In the fourth industrial revolution, digital connectivity enabled by software technologies is fundamentally changing society the scale of the impact and the speed of the changes taking place have made the transformation that is playing out so differently from any other industrial revolution in human history. Okay, and then they documented a bunch of different shifts that they thought were coming or tipping points that the World Economic Forum over the years was surveying its members or, or experts in these various areas. So the first one that they discuss here in this appendix to this book, shift one, implantable technologies, and then the tipping point, it says, the first implantable mobile phone available commercially by 2025. 82% of respondents expected this tipping point will have occurred. Okay, so this book, incidentally, I think came out in 2016. Okay, so when when they were, and, and, and a lot of the surveys and stuff were from 2015, right? So it's a 2016 book summarizing the World Economic Forum's research reports and white papers and whatnot from the, you know, as of the year earlier. So, from their perspective, they were they were forecasting 10 years in the future. So some a lot of their stuff seems a little um a bit of a stretch. Or in other words, from our vantage point now, as I'm recording this in 2022, a lot of the stuff that they're saying, is this gonna happen by 2025? It looks like it's not gonna happen that soon, but at the time when they did this, they was they still had 10 years to do it. All right. So again, this first shift, they're titling implantable technologies. In the specific one they said was the, an implantable mobile phone. But then when you read, you know, the elaboration of this, listen to this. So this is, you know, Schwab talking. Pacemakers and cochlear implants were just the beginning of this with many more health devices constantly being launched. These devices will be able to sense the parameters of diseases. They will enable individuals to take action, send data to monitoring centers, or potentially release healing medicines automatically. Here you go. Ready? Smart tattoos and other unique chips could help with identification and location. Implanted devices will likely also help to communicate thoughts normally expressed verbally through a built-in smartphone and potentially unexpressed thoughts or moods by reading brainwaves and other signals. Okay, so he's using a lot of jargon and stuff there and he's doing it in a breezy style. But what he's talking about is people having microchips or things on their skin. That's what he means by smart tattoo that's, you know electronic that can, you know, monitor your heart rate and whatever, and send a signal to the ambulance if if you need emergency medical attention, but also to read your thoughts, even ones that you're not trying to express verbally <laughs> and to communicate that to outside parties. And of course, to engage in tracking. And so what's funny too is on this, he's got for each of these shifts that they list, he's got positive impacts and like a bunch of bullet points and negative impacts so the positive impacts of these implantable technologies, reduction in missing children, increased positive health outcomes, increased self-sufficiency, better decision-making, and image recognition and availability of personal data, and then parentheses, an anonymous network that will yelp people. Okay, so what he's getting at is, you when you walk up and you you encounter somebody, if everybody's got microchips, like you can just know who that person is. Just like you right now, before, you know, you online, you find some business, you know, you want to buy whatever, a throw rug for your living room and you got some business. Oh, the price looks good. And these pictures look, but you know what, let me check this business out first. And you go to Yelp and look at the reviews. All right. And so he's saying in the future, when you approach another human being and you are considering interacting with them in some capacity, you can first consult, you can go to Yelp and see what are their reviews because you can identify them because they've got a microchip or a smart tattoo on them that's a unique identifier. And he's saying that's a good thing. Now the negative impacts. And the first bullet point is privacy slash potential surveillance. Okay. And so this is, this is what I mean about why I personally am skeptical. and, And I don't think that this guy is just an honest broker and he's just, you know, hey, here's the pros and cons. Because just to say, oh, potential surveillance when the whole point is surveillance, or that's one of the points, right? So, you know, you'd think when he's talking about implantable microchips that he he wouldn't need to keep qualifying. Well, potentially, you could see how how this might be abused by some, all right? You know, he doesn't even have to say it's his own government. He could say, like, oh, nefarious governments could use this, you know, but again, so it's a very breezy way of dismissing the concerns. Okay. And just to, Give another example of that, what I mean, where it looks like he's talking about something and you're like, whoa, the elephant in the room is how this could be abused. And he just lightly mentions it and moves on. Okay, so here we go. So earlier, this is pages 18 through 19. One of the main bridges between the physical and digital applications enabled by the fourth industrial revolution is the internet of things, sometimes called the internet of all things. In its simplest form, it can be described as a relationship between things and then parentheses, products, services, places, et cetera, and people that is made possible by connected technologies and various platforms. Okay, blah, 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 blah. Consider remote monitoring, a widespread application of the Internet of Things. Any package, pallet, or container can now be equipped with a sensor, transmitter, or radio frequency identification, RFID, tag, that allows a company to track where it is as it moves through the supply chain, how it is performing, how it is being used, and so on. Similarly, customers can continuously track, practically in real time, the progress of the package or document they are expecting. For companies that are in the business of operating long and complex supply chains, this is transformative. then, ready? In the near future, similar monitoring systems will also be applied to the movement and tracking of people. And then he goes on to the next thought. <laughs> so do you see what I'm saying? He spends several sentences talking about, hey, the future is going to be so cool, businesses can use RFID chips to track packages and, you know, you can monitor, you can figure out, Oh, it's in Albuquerque Now it's over here. Now it's over here. And now it's on the truck coming out to my house. And this is great. Oh, and by the way, we're going to use similar technology to track people. Okay. So the next thing I want to talk about, you see what I'm saying? Like that's the way this thing works. And so that's why, you know, if you are a cynic or if you're paranoid, you're going to say the function of this thing is to get this all out in the open to sort of get these different groups on script so they know what's coming and they can sort of coordinate their efforts. And then if somebody objects, they can say, we are you talking about? We, we, we told you this was going to happen. But yet not emphasize the fact that, oh, by the way, you know, there's going to be RFID chips they are going to be used to track people. And also in terms of just the, how this World Economic Forum, I believe, you know, what's its purpose It's partly to shape the narrative to sort of give the script as I keep saying to all these different power brokers and to sort of keep them on message. I'll see if I can find a good example of it. But my wife and I were watching a bunch of their videos, you know, so this again, this is not Glenn Beck hit pieces. This isn't, you know, some uh, investigative reporter who's doing the deep dive into this stuff. This is their web, the World Economic Forum's own YouTube channel. If you watch their stuff, it's very, uh, Artificial, like in many cases, so they can they have this host, and she's got like you know different experts in these various fields that she will farm it out to. Like, the, like there was some conference, I think it was on the Great Reset actually, that the World Economic Forum had, you know, in Davos, and so then they're sort of doing like a play by play, you know, like at the, okay, we've just finished day one of the conference where we focused on sustainability, and so now here with us today to recap what happened at the conference. We've got so-and-so who's the head of the NGO from India. And we've got so-and-so who's the head of agricultural sciences, you know, at, at the London School of Economics. And we've got so-and-so who's the head of UNICEF. And we've got so-and-so, you know, that's the film. The, I'm making those details up, but that's the spirit of it. And for a lot of these people, especially if they are employees of the World Economic Forum, for one thing, like they, they check all the boxes in terms of diversity, right? And they're all like young people, many female, you know, different races and such, all real photogenic. And for a lot of them, you can see they are literally reading off a teleprompter and that they're using all the buzzwords about sustainability and for the future. And this is the thing to enhance diversification and da 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 da, da. And, you know, all these the multi-stakeholder approaches. So they're all on script and they're literally reading from a script. Like you can see their eyes going, reading from a teleprompter as they're getting farmed out and doing their little their little piece. So that's what I'm saying, that these things are very choreographed to give this, this aura of inevitability to the whole thing. Like this is coming, and if you watch this, it just looks like, oh yeah, this is the future. Because they're, they just keep confidently telling you this is going to be the future, right? So it's almost hypnotic. Okay, I think actually this is a, a good point for me to wrap up. I will go through in the next episode... I'll go through some of the major highlights from the book, The Fourth Industrial Revolution. All right, so that's a good stopping point. For links for all this, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 227, and I will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.